Welcome back to episode 16 of the NP Dude. This is Jeff, the NP Dude, and I am giving nurse practitioners a voice, and that is my voice and your voice, all of our voices. And to do that, I need you guys, I need you guys to give me comments, questions, concerns, show ideas, feedback on my Facebook page, feedback on my website, comments section, and that's how we're going to get this voice out there. I'm seeing a lot of really neat stuff out there. Um, to talk about one of the things that's just kind of come up over the last couple days has been revolving around the um, use of suboxone and I'm doing the buprenorphine training I'm still kind of milking it to get through it um, I'm taking my time because I really want to spend the time listening to it and not just blowing through it and taking the tests and getting my certification on it uh, to get my waiver but I really am trying to learn from it so I'm taking my time with it and one of the things that I've seen uh, between doing the waiver training and doing some comments and things on Facebook is that I used to be really a jerk <laughs> and I can admit it, right? I mean, that's the best part about being human is that we are all, we all screw up. We all make mistakes and we're all going to be wrong. It's just that if you have the ability to make the, the conscious thought to admit when you're wrong and here's why I was wrong when I was working as an RN and when I was in training for my RN, um, I, I didn't understand what addiction was and so I, I continually believed even up until uh, just in the last couple months that addiction was something that it was a lack of willpower or um, it was a defect in chemistry in their brain or something but it was something that if, if you really wanted it bad enough you have to hit rock bottom and then you should be able to scrape yourself up and, and fix yourself from there and and I was dead wrong and and um, where I've, I've realized it, and, and I've kind of felt that way since I've been doing the waiver training and working in addiction medicine, but where I've really noticed that I was wrong was I saw a Facebook post from somebody that said, um, and I, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but it was it was something to the effect of, um, you know, Suboxone, yeah, these people are just looking for a way out or whatever, you know, just looking for the easy way. And... Um, and I was like, wow, that's really an uneducated statement, especially knowing what I know now. And, and that's something that maybe I wouldn't have said that, but I might have <laughs> in the past because it was completely naive to the idea of what addiction is. So I think that's a good thing we could talk about today. And so if you're not familiar with addiction medicine, if you're not familiar with the addicted brain, uh, this is a great show for you. If you're not interested, you know what, skip it. That's fine. Um, but man, I think it's I think it's interesting, and it's a lot of pharmacology and a lot of pathophysiology, and um, and once you understand the the way that these two things work together. Uh, it's it's hard to deny the fact that that addicts do things because they can't help it, and you know not trying to give people a pass because there are certainly people that know right from wrong and and should know better, but once you're caught in that trap of addiction, it kind of goes out the window once you understand how how it works. So how does it work? How does addiction work? Well, if you if you've listened to the buprenorphine training. Um, the ASAM waiver training, then you already know this. And but but what I'm I'm going to do is I'm going to use a, a model of explanation that I've seen used personally, and that I've kind of modified slightly to fit how I talk, 
in how I work and how I've actually talked to patients with this with addiction. And and I think it gets through and I think it, it resonates easily. And so this might be a way that you can understand it as well as use it for your for your uh, patients as well. And this isn't even necessarily for addicts, but for people that um, maybe want to use Percocets or something and you can say, eh, eh, here's why not, because <laughs> you get stuck in this trap. Um, so here, here's my spiel, so to speak. Um, when I have somebody come in and they say, you know, I want to get on Suboxone or I want to start Vivitrol or I want to, I want to, you know, do Subutex or whatever, but I want to start, um, treatment. And, um, I ask them point blank, have you, do you know how heroin works? Do you know why you get high? And they say typically no, because most people don't know. And, um, what happens, here's the physiology. In the middle of your brain, in your midbrain, which is your dinosaur brain, this is my words, your old dinosaur brain has a couple main functions. And you can think brainstem functions, right? So if you've worked in ICU and all that's left is brainstem, you can think that they're basically breathing, and that's about it. But it also has a couple other functions when you're you're cognitively open and available. And it's for food water and basic life support is really what it what it does and so your midbrain does all these these main basic functions but guess what you've you've evolved you've grown a brain around your midbrain over you know depends up whether you're religious or not how many years it is but for thousands and thousands of years we've developed larger brains and because of that we have frontal cortex, which has decision-making authority that can shut up the midbrain. So when you have, um, say you're, you're outside working and you're kind of sweating and it's summertime and it's hot and you're kind of thirsty and your midbrain jumps up and says, hey, you might want to take a drink of water. You're getting kind of thirsty, but you know that you're, you know, 100 feet from the house and you're almost done with the work outside and your front brain says, shut up midbrain. I got this. We'll get a drink when I'm done. And your midbrain sits down and it's quiet, doesn't do anything else again. So usually your midbrain is in check by your, your frontal cortex. You can make decisions to do what you want to do. It overrides it. Well, imagine for a second that you are walking through the desert. Your car broke down. And I'm stealing this. This is the story that I used that I stole from someone else. And you're walking through the desert and you're... You know, a couple hours in, midbrain steps up and says, hey, you better find some water. I'm getting pretty thirsty here. And your frontal says, you know what? Sit down. I got this. I'm going to keep walking. I got a plan, whatever. And you keep walking. Well, a day later, your midbrain jumps up and starts screaming a little louder. And your frontal says, all right, all right, hold on. I'm, I'm looking. I'm starting to panic. I got it. I know what I need to do. And then finally, eventually, your midbrain steps up to the front and says, I don't care what you do. You have to do something or we're going to die. It's your basic life support. And so I show up at your door or I, I, while you're walking on the, the road, and I, and I pull up next to you, and I pull out a bottle of water, and I say, you know what? I'll give you this bottle of water if you promise that you will never see any of your loved ones ever again, ever. Can't go near them. Can't talk to them. They, you disappear. You never, they don't know you exist. Well, your midbrain's going to say, take the deal, dude. We need the water. We, we, need, we need the water now or we're going to die. So you're not going to see him either way, so you might as well get the water. So you drink drink the water, shuts up the midbrain, and then your frontal comes back online and says, 
Well, that was the stupidest agreement I ever made. How the hell do I get out of it? And that's where the same thing that happens with, with drugs, with heroin in particular. And here's why. So when you have heroin and you take it, it activates the mu receptors, right? Everybody knows the mu receptors. And when you activate the mu receptor, it releases in the brain dopamine, which bathes the midbrain in dopamine. And that's great, right? Dopamine's a great thing. It's a neurotransmitter. It's the feel-good neurotransmitter. It makes you happy. It makes you feel wonderful. It gets you all jazzed, every, you know, everything. Well, there's a bunch of things that can cause dopamine rush without having to have heroin. Um, sex can cause it. Eating your favorite meal can cause it. Um, watching your kid in the school play or win the wrestling championship or, or um, finishing that marathon that you've always wanted to or watching your sports team win or whatever it is. But you get that rush of adrenaline feel to you and you get that, uh, that euphoria and it's great, right? Well, that's appropriate amount of dopamine. The problem with heroin and with opiates is that it causes a, an exorbitant amount of dopamine release to the point where your body, your brain, your midbrain is overwhelmed with it. And that's why you get that high. Well, not everybody. And according to the, to the ACM training, and it, I can't remember what it was. It was the eight hour, the first section that I did a while ago. It's about 10% of the people will have an inappropriate response to heroin. The normal response to heroin or to opiates is to get sick to your stomach, throw up, and pass out for two days. That's the appropriate response to heroin. So what you can think of is it's almost like an allergy to heroin or to opiates. It's an inappropriate response where you get euphoria. So about 10% of the people will get euphoria, and the other 90 get sick and want to take a nap. So if you're unlucky enough to be in that 10% and you take an opiate and you're like, man, that was fantastic. Now we got to be concerned because this is somebody that you want to be watching out. This is people that you can educate when they're in uh, coming out of the hospital and seeing you in primary care or they're asking for opiates because they have a you know hangnail or whatever it is um, or a low back pain, whatever. And it could be justifiable pain, but these are things that you want to be aware of is that there's a certain number of people that they're going to have an inappropriate reaction like an allergy to, to the heroin or to the opiate. I use heroin as, because it's usually what we're seeing now, but, but it could be any prescription or not. So what happens with the dopamine, right? Well, the dopamine increases around the midbrain, and you, and you say, you know what, that was really good. Well, when the midbrain doesn't feel that dopamine again, just like when it didn't get the water, it hijacks the frontal cortex and says, hey, jackass, I need some more dopamine, but it doesn't know what dopamine is. It knows that you used... Uh, Percocets or Oxy or heroin or methadone or got hands on some Suboxone, something. And, and it, and it re activated those mu receptors to release the dopamine to give it a bath and shut it up. And that's why you get the cycle. And if you've ever talked to an addict, they'd go through these cycles where they wake up in the morning and they're like, I'm not doing that again. I'm not doing it again. I'm not doing it again. And then all of a sudden, it's like an hour later and they're, they're, they're jamming a needle in their arm because they have no option. Their brain can't stop the cycle. And so when I see, hear people say, you, you won't die from with, withdrawing from heroin, that it's true. You won't. You'll just feel like crap. And that's for other reasons we could talk about too. Um, but what's scary is that within three or four or five hours after stopping, 
you're going to be right back to where you, you're going to do anything you have to do to get that. Just like you made that bad deal to get that glass of water because your brain is, is taking, it's hijacked. It's, it's almost like it's a, a split personality. So when somebody robs grandma's house and takes all their crap and sells it to buy dope, uh, yeah, it's wrong. Uh, but, but you can at least understand why they're doing it and that there is some lack of control there. It's not necessarily a conscious decision. And I talked to uh, several people that have been in recovery for, for months and months and months, and they feel so horrible because they know what they did. They just couldn't stop it. And, and I had, I had a guy, I don't know, a couple weeks ago that was in tears crying over and he had done this stuff over a year ago to somebody. And he's like, I think about it all the time. Well, how I, how I hurt these people. And it just plays through their mind. How bad of a person is he? How bad? Of, and you have to reinforce. It's not, you know, you, you, here's the path of physiology. Here's why it's doing what it's doing and let them make the decision to believe if it was their will or not. But the more I'm learning, it's, you know, it's hard to say, but to me, it seems as though this is truly a disease. Now, starting heroin or, or, or uh, some kind of opiate in the first instance, um, I think a lot of it's been done by the medical community, uh, HCAP scores in the hospitals and things like that. But I think that there's been a, uh, just in, in our society in general, just a lack of community and lack of of um, satisfaction with li their lives. And I think people will go into the cupboard and say, oh, hey, I see there's a couple, four extra Percocets that are sitting there and i got nothing better to do and I'm, I'm kind of sad or I'm kind of frustrated or I'm not coping well with something and I'm going to pop one of these and forget my troubles for a little while. And next thing you know, they're popping one all the time and coming up with, you know, Selling, selling things to, to buy it on the street or, or trying to get their providers to give it to them. And it's really sad. So whether you, you agree with how they got there in the first place, once they're in it, they're in it. And it's hard to get out. So how do you get them out of it? And this is where the judgmental part that I didn't understand, even in ICU just a short couple of years ago, was that I would see somebody, we got all the overdoses, right? And I would see people come in overdose and I, and I, I, treat, I treat everybody as, as nice as I can, but I just didn't understand it. So I kind of avoided the, the, the discussion because I wasn't there and in the position to actually treat their addiction, but I was wrong. I could have, I could have helped. I could have talked to them. I could have explained the physiology to them. I mean, if I would have had this buprenorphine training five years ago when I was in undergrad nursing school or six years ago, man, how, how much better would that have been? I, I could have been able to help spot some of those issues when they were in the hospital. I don't know. I just I think that this, the buprenorphine training is, is going to be something that's going to be very well um, received by the nurse practitioner community, and we're at the forefront of of it really breaking opening with the Kara law. And I just saw today, somebody posted that they just finished the waiver training and got their, um, their waiver. So I believe that they now have, uh, ACM has the waivers up that you can actually get, but it still depends on your state and we're still behind the curve in Ohio. So we're still waiting for that to be approved. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, it, this is one of those instances where I, I look back at, at how I how I thought, and I saw somebody's Facebook comment, and I thought, man, what a what a jerky kind of comment. And then I thought, man, that was that was probably me, not that long ago. So 
you know, just take it with a grain of salt. And if you have those predispositions to think, you know, I don't want to do anything with treatment of, of addiction, guess what? It's an epidemic. It's going to be in every primary care office in the country in the next three to five years. And you'll be seeing people with it. And um, you're going to see office managers. You're going to see um, programs incentivizing primary care practices in treating addiction because there is not enough facilities there's not enough beds there's not enough outpatient uh intensive outpatient programs and um you're just you're gonna see it so you might as well embrace it learn about it get involved with it as soon as possible become a pioneer in it it's you know i'm not this wasn't my passion this isn't wasn't what i went to np school for but man it's kind of cool you know to be on the cutting edge of something and uh to be something that, you know, you can really make a difference doing this. It's not just, you know, treating, you know, otitis media all day long. You're, you're actually saving people's lives. Because if you don't treat them, the likelihood of them dying is near 100%. It's just that that much of a reality. Now, here's a here's another pathophysiology thing that, that um, or physiology thing that's just kind of interesting. So when you have too much opiate for too long of a period of time or for a long period of time, you downregulate the number of mu receptors, right? So you need to get more and more and more and more to get the same effect, right? There's your tolerance that you get. Some some physiology words that we talked about before, pharmacology words. So you get your tolerance built up, and then what happens is somebody goes off of it. They quit cold turkey, or they get thrown in jail, or something like that. They 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 withdraw, which can last up to a week. For them to withdraw, and what happens with withdrawal? We must just talk about it, right? So, in withdrawal, basically, what happens is you have a shortage of dopamine. Think of think of steroids. When you give somebody a long taper of steroids, imagine not doing a long taper, giving them you know sixty milligrams a day for a month, and then cutting them off cold turkey. Well, you're going to kill. You're shutting off their adrenal system, right? Well, it's the same way with the dopamine system in the brain. You're basically shutting off the 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 uh, the natural ability for the stimulation of dopamine to bathe the midbrain. So what happens? The the locus ceruleus, which is right in front of the midbrain, it's just a little area in front of the midbrain, is the it was what is thought to be the main area that causes withdrawal symptoms. And what happens is it's it basically overproduces norepinephrine. So what do you get with norepinephrine? Norepinephrine is levofed, right? So you're going to get elevated blood pressure. You're going to be tachycardic. You're going to be all those sympathetic responses that you see in um, in somebody that's that's you know fight or flight, adrenergic, whatever, all synonyms, right? And so you get the, these these symptoms of the sweating, the tachycardia, all that good stuff. But then you get the, these competing issues in the GI system, right? Because you have mu receptors in the GI system which is why you get opioid-induced constipation, well, guess what? You don't have those opiates in there that are, that are, that are uh, affecting those mu receptors in the gut. So now all of a sudden you go from you know, constipated or relatively normal because eventually they get normalized in their, in their GI system um, that they get a tolerance to. And then all of a sudden they have loose stool. I mean, they can't control it. They just crap themselves all over the place for a week. They just can't help it. They just like look at you and then there's crap. And it's because the, their body is betraying them because it doesn't have the opiate to, to block the mu receptor, receptors in the GI system, which is kind of counterintuitive to what you would expect with a sympathetic response. But that's why it does it. So that's where you get your, your, um, 
your sympathetic response from the Marcus or the, the locus Cerulius Marcus, some kind of Spartan or something. <laughs> it's the locus Cerulius. And so you get these, these withdrawal symptoms, but, um, you, you get, you get, um, so if, if somebody goes in, into the, into the prison or, or jail or something for a couple of days, here's the problem that happens. So they go in, they go through withdrawal and it only takes three days for the cells to rebuild the appropriate number of mu receptors. So in the absence of an opiate, the appropriate number of mu receptors get put back on the surface of the cells. So do you think they need to use the same amount of heroin that they used the last time they used three days ago, four days ago? Hell no. They only need a, a, probably a fraction of that to get the same effect. The problem is, is they don't know that. So they, they go off it for a couple days, their cells restructure themselves, and then all of a sudden they OD. And they end up in the, in the ED getting narcan and then they, then they leave and they're pissed because they, you, you ruined their high. But they, they don't realize because they don't understand the physiology that they don't need to waste that much. You know, I'm being, being kind of sarcastic, but they, they shouldn't be using near that amount that they were using the last time they used. They can't handle it. Their body will betray them and die. They'll, they'll go into respiratory depression because of it. So what do we do in, in recovery? What do we do to stop people from, from killing themselves, right? Well, we get them on a structured plan, and we use Suboxone or Subutex. It just depends. And we do, um, where I'm at, we do daily dosing for a period of time. And I'm not going to divulge any of the information on that because it's site-specific. But you do it for a period of time where, until you can trust that, you know what, they're doing their meetings, they're going to AA, and um, their, their urine drug screens are coming back appropriate, and... Um, you know, they're calling their, their urine drug screen 1-800 number every day and everything. They're do, doing what they're supposed to do, and they're trying. They're, you know, as long as they're making efforts, then, then we're good. That's what the drug is there for. Now, talking about Suboxone, and I see, I've seen a couple funny comments, and, and not funny like haha, but just funny like why, um, on Facebook about Suboxone, in that um, it's being used as pain medication. And, and according to the ASAM training, it can be off-label used as a pain medicine, but why would you? I mean, it, that's probably like 1990s thinking, I think, that, that, you know, it's not as strong, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why you may want to use it, but by thinking that you're going to use Suboxone to protect somebody from becoming an opiate abuser is ridiculous because it's an opiate. So I, I don't know how that, that logic works. So I, I found that kind of laughable, but what, what I found interesting about the training, the buprenorphine training, is that if you look at the pharmacokinetics and um, the pharmacodynamics of the medicine and compare them with the other prescription opiates, it's not nearly as potent, and it has a ceiling effect on a bunch of it, the bad things about opiates. So what's the big thing you worry about in the hospital? You always want to count respirations, right? When you give morphine and then you, you know, if they're breathing less than eight, you're not going to give it to them because you're going to bottom out their breathing. Well, with Suboxone, that doesn't happen. You don't bottom them out with their breathing. You can't, you can't, there's no, there's a ceiling effect. You could take take his take and it doesn't have an effect on breathing. Same thing with um, like constipation and same thing with, um, in theory, with um, euphoria, 
you're not going to get near the high you would get with any of the other opiates. So on the potency factor, I use it generic, which is what my collaborative does too. He says, if you take, you know, Percocet and, you know, or Oxy and morphine and methadone and all those, and you say that those all have a opiate potency of 10, you're about half that at five with Suboxone. And the cool thing about Suboxone versus the others is that it has a half-life of about a day. So when you're, you know, if you have somebody that's, if you've worked in the hospital, and most everybody that's going to be listening to this has worked in a hospital at one point in time, and you've given out pain medicine, and you have that acutely, you know, that brand new belly surgery, and that person's just in pain and just uncontrolled pain, and you're pounding this person with morphine every two hours, well... That's because the half-life is only like an hour and a half, you know, for IV morphine. It's supposed to be three hours, but it never lasted that long. And so you would do the same thing Percocet. You'd give them Percocet, and three or four hours later, they'd be like, all right, my pain's back. And so it's the same way with the euphoria and with the, with the, the need for the medication. Now, once people get addicted to, to heroin, it's, it's not that they take the medicine to get euphoric. It's so that they can function. It's so that they don't get dope sick. It's to keep them going. It's not to get high to get stoned out of their mind anymore. It's so that they literally shoot up so they can get up and go to work, which is kind of a scary thought, right? At one point in time, it used to be for euphoria or for pain or for something, and eventually it turned into, I need this to function. And... um, so, so that's kind of the, the idea is that the, the Suboxone carries you through over a period of time that's much longer. Now, the other thing that's, that's kind of neat about it is that the buprenorphine has a greater affinity for the mu receptors than the other opiates. So one of the things we have to be very careful of when we induce, and it's the induction is what it's called when you start somebody on Suboxone or methadone, it's in the induction phase, uh, is that you have to make sure that they have a cow's score of around 11 to 13, which is your... your um, the uh, scale for it's like Siwa scale, but it's for for opiates. And basically, you need them in partial withdrawal and uncomfortable because if they're not, what's going to happen if you give them Suboxone is you can precipitate withdrawal because the Suboxone is going to knock the other opiates that are in their system off of the receptors, and you're going to precip- precipitate a much faster withdrawal, and they're going to hate you. <laughs> they're never going to come back. So you have to be really open and honest and say, you know what, we need to make you a little uncomfortable for you know half a day or a day, and um, we'll, we'll get you started tomorrow you know, on, on Suboxone, but not today, because if we do it today, then you're going to probably have a problem. So that's, that's kind of the, 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 uh, the basic pharmacology of the, the Suboxone. And, and it, the, the reason I wanted to do this one was just to admit that, man, I, I was kind of a jackass about it and not that i was trying to be mean it's just that i didn't understand it and and and, uh it was just really kind of eye-opening seeing some of the comments on facebook about suboxone and and from it from the perspective that i probably would have had so if you if you like this show um leave me a comment if you don't like the show that's fine too tell me tell me in the comments and say you know what you're full of crap jeff i'm still waiting nobody's telling me i'm full of crap i'm waiting um I got to be full of something somewhere, right? Somebody's going to tell me I'm wrong. But uh, keep the comments coming. Keep the keep the uh, the ideas coming. I've got a couple other ideas I'm working on right now. Uh, I apologize. It's been a little while since I did a show, and that's because over the weekend I, I worked 
work second half of last week and I kind of picked up something from somebody at work and got sick over the weekend and wasn't feeling really well. So I, I just finally started to feel human again. So, um, I do apologize for such a delay. I, I don't really want to wait that long between shows and I want to keep things going. So keep ideas coming. You can always, uh, leave a comment underneath the episode. Um, you can find me at the NP dude on Facebook and leave a comment on my Facebook page. And you're also welcome to email me, Jeff at the NP dude. Don't forget. You can listen on iTunes and, um, share, share the show. That's how we're getting the word out. So thanks again for tuning in and talk soon.